Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Genesis, and I invite you to turn there with me if you have a a Bible or or take one of the the few Bibles from the rack in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that one home with you today as a gift from us. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, our preacher this morning needs no introduction to many of you, because he is a long-time MPCer and indeed ruling elder here at McLean, Hugh Welchel. Uh, for those of, the, of us, though, who, who don't know you, Hugh, tell us uh, how long you've been here at MPC. Actually, I've been here uh, 15 years, since um, 2000, when we moved here from Central Florida. Okay. And uh, tell everyone about the first time you and I met. Well, actually, your reputation had already preceded you when I met you the first time. Uh, But I was the first elder, I believe, to interview James, and we did it just down the road here in the hotel. Yeah, that's right. And if I had not given him the thumbs up, he wouldn't be here. Yeah. (laughs) Whether that gives you credit or blame is still to be be determined. And and, uh, tell us uh, what it is that you you do now here. I started about three and a half years ago, Paul Brooks and I started the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. And what we're trying to do is encourage evangelical Christians that their work does make a difference, not only in their churches, but in their vocations, in their families, and in their communities, to further God's kingdom in the here and now. Yeah, thanks Hugh. So this, uh, Hugh's got great passion and interest in the, the fourth topic of our missions month, having looked at our poverty with God, our poverty with self, our poverty with our communities, and now thinking about our poverty with the, the rest of creation. It's a thing that uh, Hugh spends a lot of time thinking about, and so we're thrilled to have him preaching this morning. Uh, before you do though, let me, let me pray for us. Absolutely. Lord, we're, we're grateful for you, and I know that, that I am just personally, Lord. I thank you for the man that he is and the impact he's had on, on so many of us, myself included. And uh, Lord, we're, we're glad now to, to hear from him as he opens up your word to us. I pray that you'd give him confidence and liberty and clarity of thought and expression to really uh, hold Jesus up before us. And Father, uh, we want to be attentive as listeners. Would you enable us to engage heart and mind to listen for, for your voice through you, that we might meet with you in this time and be challenged, encouraged, convicted, compelled by it. We ask all these things in the matchless name of your Son. Amen. Amen. Thank you, James. 
I told James earlier, I feel like the anchor man of a 4 by 100 relay, that the baton has been passed to me, and fortunately the three people that spoke before me, or ran the race before me, if you will, uh, has given me such a huge lead, all I have to do is get to the finish line before the other guys catch up. So that's what we'll try to do this morning. For the last four weeks during our missions month here at McLean Presbyterian Church, we've talked about poverty. We have said that all poverty, spiritual poverty, psychological poverty, social poverty, physical poverty, is fundamentally rooted in broken relationships. We heard James uh, preach three or four weeks ago. We said man's broken relationship to God leads to the poverty of spirit. Then the following week we heard that man's broken relationship with himself leads to poverty of self. Then last week we heard that man's broken relationship with his fellow man leads to a community of poverty. And this morning, I'm going to try to explain how man's broken relationship with creation leads to a missed opportunity to fulfill our original calling. Now, there's basically two assumptions that we've made as we've made these arguments. And I want to drill down on both of those a little bit before we start. The first assumption is simply this, that man was created as a relational being. And you might say, well, Hugh, that's pretty obvious. We can look around and we can tell that man has this um, draw toward relationships. But see, I think it's much, much more than that. I think at our very core, this is who we were created to be by the Creator. That we were made to live in relationships. I have to see it in the text that we read this morning. Look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see, God is a relational being. Think about the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who've lived in perfect relationship, perfect peace, perfect harmony, perfect unity forever. So to say that we're created in the likeness of God at least means that at the very core, we were created to be relational beings. That is one of the most significant, important things about us. Not only that, we were created for a specific relationship. A relationship with our creator. And all other relationships were to flow from that first relationship. Daryl Johnson writes in his book, Experiencing the Trinity, At the center of the universe is a relationship. This is the most fundamental thing that I know. At the center of the universe is a community. It is out of that relationship that you and I were created and redeemed. And it's for that relationship that you and I were created and redeemed. The second assumption, excuse me, the second assumption is that these relationships can be fixed. And I've got some bad news for you. They are broken. These relationships are very, very broken. In fact, I would say, and go as far as to say, they're shattered. 
And the real bad news is there's nothing that you or I can do to fix these relationships. Yet, I said they could be fixed. How is that possible? I think it helps if we step back and get a bigger perspective on what's happening here. Particularly when we look at God's redemptive story as it's spelled out in the meta-narrative of his word from the beginning of Revelation, excuse me, from the beginning of Genesis to the very end of Revelation. At the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics, we call this the four-chapter gospel. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And we think this is a great framework to look at God's redemptive story. And it's very helpful to understand it that way. Creation explains the way things were. The fall explains the way things are. Redemption shows the way things could be. And finally, restoration shows the way things will be. Now, when we look at these four broken relationships in that context, we see that in the chapter of creation, they were not broken. In fact, they were perfect. And great, they brought great blessing to not only man, but to the creation. But then what happens? Sin enters into the world, and there's the fall. And that sin is far more devastating than we can possibly imagine. Not only did it break the relationship between us and the creator... But it broke all these subsequent relationships as well and marred the very creation itself. That's why Paul can say that the creation, what, groans in, in anticipation for God to finish his redemptive plan for it. One of the real problems in this four-chapter gospel is that we in the church today have truncated it to two chapters. We see it as just creation, excuse me, we see it just as fall and redemption. And when we do that, we leave out this idea of creation so we forget why we were created. We lose the sight of what these relationships looked like when they were perfect. And then we also cut out the restoration. So we forget that there will be a time when these are are restored, absolutely restored. So you see this idea uh, of the true chapter gospel really talks about the gospel. Is, it's all about us. And we don't see this bigger picture because, see, God wants us to see this idea that in the beginning, these relationships were there. The fall comes, these relationships are shattered. And then by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, these relationships, each one will be redeemed, starting with the relationship with the creator and then each subsequent relation. And then finally, when we stand in the new heaven and the new earth, when we, we, we live with Christ forever in that place, after he's come back and judged the world, those relationships will be perfectly restored. We have to be able to capture this bigger vision of the gospel, this four-chapter vision. Dallas Willard says that the problem with the two-chapter gospel is that we make the gospel into a gospel of sin management. Another author writes this, The gospel, when understood in its fullness, is not solely about individual happiness and fulfillment. It's not all about me. It's not just a wonderful plan for my life, but a wonderful plan for the world. It's about the coming of God's kingdom to renew all things. Only with this bigger picture 
in view, can we understand how our story fits into his story? See, the gospel, it's the gospel that redeems our relationship with our creator, not anything we do. It's the gospel that redeems our relationship with ourselves, not anything we do. It's the gospel that redeems our relationship with one another. And it's the gospel that leads us back to what I think, or what I call, our original calling. And we see that original calling in the text today. We see it in Genesis 1.28. Read with me. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Nancy Percy in her her book uh, entitled Total Truth writes this about this passage. She says, the first phrase, be fruitful and multiply, means to develop the social world. Build families, churches, schools, cities, governments, laws. The second phrase, subdue the earth, means to harness the natural world, plant crops, build bridges, design computers, and compose music. This passage is sometimes called the cultural mandate because it tells us that our original purpose was to create cultures, build civilizations, nothing less. You see, the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve was there, was perfect. But it wasn't finished. Let me say that again. The Garden of Eden was perfect, but it was not finished. If Adam and Eve had not sinned, they would not have stayed in the garden forever. What would they have done? They would have gone out into the world and subdued it. They would have filled it with his images. They would have built cities, great cities that would have glorified God. Interestingly enough, that desire to improve our surroundings still exists in all of us. As fallen images of God, that still exists. The problem is we go out and do those things not to glorify God, but to glorify ourselves. Christopher Wright, in his book, The Mission of God's People, writes this. When God created the earth, he created human beings in his own image with the express mission of ruling over creation by caring for it. A task modeled on the kingship of God himself. The human mission has never been rescinded. And Christians have not been given some exemption on the grounds that we have other things that are better to do. So let me ask you this. What does subduing the earth look like? Well, literally, the, 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 I mean, the Hebrew word that we translate into subdue is the word kabosh. So this is the um, sermon in a sentence. You know, we're called to go out and give the creation the kabosh, right? one way to look at it. But in that context, what that word really means, it means much more than just subdue. And that's a word that we don't have a really good understanding. It literally means to make the earth useful for human beings' benefit and enjoyment. That's what subdue means. To make the earth to benefit human beings. So what does subdue the earth look like? It looks like work. It looks like what we were called to do, what we were made to do. See, because we as Christians that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb stand in the same place Adam and Eve did. And as God gives them their job description, 
that job description echoes down through the centuries, through the eons, to us as well. But see, we not only know what God wants us to do, we also have been equipped by the Holy Spirit to be able to go do it. And it's just not our work in the church. One of the problems in the church today is we have this this secular spiritual divide, which has caused tremendous damage. See, we think that the work we do here in the church is spiritual, but the work we do tomorrow at work is secular. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Everything you do, the work you do in your vocation, the work you do in your family, the work you do in the community, the work you do in the church, all of it is spiritual work. This is why the Apostle Paul says in Corinthians 10.31, do everything to the glory of God. He doesn't say just do your church work to the glory of God. He doesn't say just do your volunteer work for the glory. He says do everything. Because everything you do is part of what the New Testament calls stewardship. In fact, the New Testament sees all of this work combined as stewardship. Now, unfortunately, in the church today, we've lost that biblical understanding of stewardship. In a recent poll, Christians were asked... What does stewardship mean? And almost 80% of them said, oh, that means giving money to your church. That's not the biblical definition of stewardship. Let me give you a definition that one um, commentator writes down. He said, stewardship is the faithful and effective management of property or resources belonging to another. Now, the first time I read that, I said, well, that's as good as it goes. But you know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like house-sitting. Now, I know all of us, or most of us, have, have house set at some point in your life, right? Where you went in and took care of someone else's house. And usually you did it because their house was a lot nicer than your house or where you were living, right? And I don't know about you, but when I house it, I tried my best just not to break anything, which, which is difficult for me, but I, try, I would try to do that. I would never have thought while I was house sitting to go out and build on another bedroom to that house. See, that's, that's the problem with this definition. It doesn't tap into what we're called to do. Let me add one phrase which I think helps it. Stewardship then is the faithful and effective management of property or resources belonging to another in order to achieve the owner's original objective. Let me ask you, what was God's original objective when he, when he built all this? When he made the heavens and the earth, what was his original objective? What was he trying to do? The answer to it is throughout the Bible. We see it in the Psalms. We see it in the Old Testament prophets. We see it in the New Testament. It's even in the book of Revelation. He built all of this in order to glorify himself, that he might be glorified. It's like a master painter who paints a a masterpiece painting. And that painting does what? It reflects the glory of the painter who painted it. So the creation is supposed to reflect the glory of the creator. So he built all this that he might be glorified. We read in actually in Revelations 4.11. Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. Now let me ask you another question. When then is God most glorified? If he's glorified in his creation, when he is the most glorified? And I think, once again, we find the answer to that question in our text today. Go look at verse 31. If you think about this to set this verse up, 
In this first chapter, we read about the first six days of creation. And after every day, after the third day, after the fourth day, after the fifth day, what does God say? God says this is good. The end of the fourth day, it's good. The end of the fifth day, it's good. The end of the sixth day, what does he say? He says, and God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. Why is it very good? I believe part of it is that he looks out on the creation. He sees everything he made. He sees how it all works perfectly together. How it's all interconnected in ways we can't even imagine. From the smallest subatomic particles to the greatest galaxies spinning in space. There's this interdependence that's built in to the very fabric of creation. So God's intent for his creation was for it to flourish. And when it flourishes, he's glorified. The more it flourishes, the more glorified. And on that day when it was finished, it glorified him perfectly because everything worked exactly as he intended. But what happens? We know sin comes into the world. This is the second chapter, the fourth chapter gospel, right? And when that sin enters into the world, the relationship between creator and and creature, it's us, is broken. And when that relationship is broken, all the rest of the relationships are broken. So, as God has redeemed those of us whose name is written on his book of life, and as we go out and, and work, what is the purpose of our work? There's a great faith and work movement that's building, and there are a lot of books being written, and a lot of talk about how important your faith, I mean, excuse me, how important your work is to your faith. And they're mainly talking about your vocational calling and how important that is to God. And it's not just a platform for evangelism, but there's inherent value in everything you do, even the most mundane things you do tomorrow when you go to work. If you do them to glorify God, having tremendous value in ways you can't possibly even imagine. So as God's stewards, oh, let, me, let me jump back. So, so there's this movement. See, what they talk about is that your work is important to God. They don't tell you why your work is important. This is why your work is important, no matter where it is. Because it brings about flourishing, which is what God intended for his creation. As God's stewards, then, what is the goal of our work? <clears throat> it should be biblical flourishing. See, stewardship implies an expectation of human achievement. J.R.R. Tolkien said that God creates something from nothing. And we read that in the creation story. We can't do that. But the expectation is that we will create something from something. Tolkien called us sub-creators. That that's what we've been put on the earth to do. That we're to build things. We're to create things. We're to do things that bring about flourishing that glorifies God, that serves the common good and furthers the kingdom of heaven in this place, in this time. This is not an idea that was lost to most of Christianity down through the history of Christianity. Over the last 1900 years, Christians have understood this principle and acted accordingly. Look at Western civilization. Look at the history of Western civilization. Until about 100 years ago, when we lost this concept, Almost every good thing that was done in Western civilization, building hospitals, education, 
abolition of slavery, the rights of women. You go on and on and on. Were done by Christians who understood that this was their call to go out and make the world a better place for everyone, to the glory of God. But somehow, and I think it's attached to this truncation of the four chapter gospel to two chapters, we've lost that vision today. See, unfortunately, too many Christians today think that their salvation is simply a bus ticket to heaven. And it really doesn't matter once they've got the ticket. It really doesn't matter what they do until the bus gets there. They can sit there and play video games. It doesn't matter. Nothing could be farther from the truth. God called us out of darkness into light, out of death into life, to do something in the here and now. And that something has to do with what he's gifted you to do. With the gifts and the opportunities and the resources that he's given you. Ken Boa writes this. He says, God has entrusted us with certain resources, gifts, and abilities. Our responsibility is to live by that trust by managing these things well according to his, to God's, design and desire. See, God has given you all sorts of abilities. He's given you all sorts of gifts. He's given you all sorts of opportunities. You can't go take those and do whatever you want with them. If you're a Christian, you have to answer to a higher calling. This calling to subdue the earth in the way that he has told us to do it. And it's spelled out very clearly in God's word. One of the problems that there's so much corruption in business today. I've been a businessman for over 30 years. And it grieves me when I see them. Out. Well, you know, one of the reasons we have to take as Christians some of the responsibility. Because we've gone out and worked in the world just like everybody else does. We weren't the salt and the light that we were supposed to be because if we had been, we would have influenced other people. And there'd be less corruption. There'd be more ethics. There'd be more honesty. See, we don't have to convert everybody to make a difference. All we have to do is go out where God's put us, within the, the, the area of influence that he's given us, and do what he's called us to do. So, Two asterisks to the sermon. Two things I can't go into to, to in detail, but I want you to know. The first is that the better stewards we are, the more flourishing our lives bring about within the sphere of influence God has given us. The more flourishing, the more God's glorified. Just connect the dots. The second asterisk is this. Flourishing in stewardship can only be done in community. Earlier I said about God's creation, how it's interdependent. We're part of that interdependency. See, we're all made the same. We're all made in God's image, but we're all made very different. God's given us each different talents, each different abilities. And when we come together and work together, that's when God can multiply what he's given us with what he's given someone else, and we can really bring about substantial flourishing. My, um, <clears throat> in, in my or- organization, Faith, Work, and Economics, we have an economist that works with us there named Ann Bradley. And Ann uses this illustration. She says, remember the story, Tom Hanks in Castaway. Here he was on this beautiful desert island, plenty of food, perfect weather, uh, plenty of water. I mean, everything was perfect. It's a place that you and I would go for vacation. But does he flourish? No. Why? Because he's alone. Man doesn't flourish by himself. We don't do stewardship by ourselves. We have to work in community to accomplish it. To accomplish what God has designed for us.
The last thing, biblical flourishing glorifies God, not man. See, flourishing is a big buzzword. Lots of people use that word. But you have to make this distinction. In fact, Moses makes the distinction because he gives us an example of what unbiblical flourishing looks like. What I'd call secular flourishing. What a lot of people are involved in today. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians. It's in the 11th chapter of Genesis. It's the story of the Tower of Babel. And he literally says <clears throat> about the guys who built the tower, he says, come. These, these are them speaking. Uh, uh, the people that are building the Tower of Babel, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we might make a name for ourselves. We have a whole culture that's out there trying to make a name for themselves. We as Christians, that should not be our goal. We should be doing things. We should be bringing about flourishing to do what? To glorify God. To serve the common good and to further his kingdom here and now. Let me wrap this up with one last illustration. We believe that Jesus healed the blind man, right? Nod your head. I'm a good Presbyterian. You don't have to say amen, but just, just nod your heads, all right? We believe that Jesus healed the blind man. We believe that Jesus fed the 5,000 when he was here on this face of this earth. Now, did Jesus heal everyone that was sick in Israel? No. Did he feed everyone that was hungry in Israel when he was here? No. Could he have? Of course he could have. He's the son of God. He could have done anything he wanted to. Then the real question we need to ask ourselves is, why didn't he? Now, I have a theologian, Art Lindsley, that works for us at the um, Institute. And Art would tell you, like any good PhD theologian would tell would, would, if you asked him this question, he said, Jesus was just demonstrating his power and authority as the Son of God. And all that's true. But I think there's a simpler explanation that ties back to this idea of the four-chapter gospel. And it's simply this. What chapter was Jesus in? He's in the chapter of redemption. What did I say the chapter of redemption was about? The chapter of redemption is about showing people the way things could be. So when Jesus heals the blind man, he's showing them there could be a time when no one's blind. When he feeds the 5,000, he's showing them there could be a time when no one's hungry. And we as his disciples are to go and do likewise. We're to go out into the world, do things that bring about flourishing, that show people the way things could be. Not only do they show people the way things could be, but they point ahead to the next chapter and shows them the way things are going to be. Because what do we read in the book of Revelation? That Jesus will dry every tear from every eye in that last chapter. And there will be no one sick. And there will be no one hungry. And they'll be flourishing. As he intended. So tomorrow when you go out to work, no matter what you do, understand that if you're doing it for God's glory, and you're doing it to bring about flourishing, you're fulfilling this original calling that was given to Adam and Eve and that is also given to us this morning. When you go do volunteer work, if you go down to the Cornerstone School, you're bringing flourishing to a dark place that desperately needs it. You're giving young men and women a chance to see the way things could be in their lives and in their community. When you come to church and work in some committee, you're bringing flourishing to this church. So that this church can build up the saints, edify the body of Christ. When we're the church gathered on Sunday so that when we go out and we're the church scattered on Monday, we are truly salt and light in a way that makes a huge difference. Close with one last quote. 
T.M. Moore wrote this for Breakpoint Magazine. He writes, So no matter what your job or whatever your work might be, God intends that you should devote your labors to something greater than personal interest, economic prosperity, or social good alone. God intends your work to contribute to the restoration of the creation and the people in it, to raise life on this blue planet to a higher state of beauty, goodness, and truth, reflecting the glory of God in our midst. We will only fully appreciate and value the potential of our work when it's seen in this light. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Amen.